Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. My name is Yelena, and I'm one of the pastors on the Commons team. I had a very brief visit with you um, about a month ago, I think, so it's really good to be back. And just to start, I think I'm going to share a little bit about myself so you don't feel like there is a total stranger speaking to you today. So I was born and raised in one of the countries of the former Soviet Union, and I came to know Christ when I was 17. My husband and I are new Calgarians, just lived here for a bit over a year, and we're still trying to make sense of this weather. (laughs) And prior to moving here, uh, we lived in Vancouver. I spent a number of years at Regent College there studying theology and culture. I also worked internationally with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and served on a pastoral team um, at a church in downtown Vancouver. And here, I focus on how we build community across our both locations in Kensington and Inglewood. And this includes our home groups and dinner parties and learning initiatives, as well as our local and global partnerships. And yeah, it's really great to spend the Sunday with you. And I, I, I really look forward to getting to know you better. So we started our year together by acknowledging the problem we have with prayer. It is a deep desire of our hearts, anchored in our humanity, and yet we all struggle with it. So we spent the past three weeks digging deeper into the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 as a framework for our own prayer. We saw that for Jesus, prayer is really grounded in righteousness or this right relatedness with God and others. We also looked at how Jesus counters our individualism and our tendency of seeing God being there just for me. And Scott, I think, put it really beautifully when he said that the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to a shared future. And we also talked about how the Lord's Prayer reframes our imagination of heavens and what it means to have enough and the freedom we find in forgiveness. So hopefully this short series has encouraged you to press on and to be creative in your own prayer and to see your prayer as partnering with God in the renewal of the whole creation. This Sunday, however, we are starting our new series on Joseph, and it will take us all the way to Advent. Every year at Commons, we try to go back to the Old Testament narratives, this fascinating and puzzling collection of stories that defined um, the community of Israel and also shaped a lot of our imagination of God. Over the past few years, we have spent time in the narratives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if you would like to catch up on any particular story, do check out our podcast or go to our website, um, commons.church. Today, we will be setting the stage for Joseph by taking another look at his family of origin and how God showed up for them. Would you pray with me before we begin? Gracious God, 
you're right here in our midst, so close. You're breathing your spirit into us. You delight in who you have made us to be. And you dream of what we will become. And as we look into the stories of the patriarchs today, as we listen with Abraham, and as we struggle with Jacob, would you show us where you are at work in our lives? And where do we need to become more attentive to your whisper? And what struggles are shaping us and our conversation with you at the moment? Lord, we're thankful to be here. And we long to go from here today with more love for you and more joy about who we are in you. In the name of the risen Christ, who holds us and loves us, we pray. Amen. So, the story of Joseph begins the following way in Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Two things here. First, what does it tell us about the family dynamic when the favorite son brings intelligence about his brothers to his father? Well, and the brothers are technically only his half-brothers, and they were born from the two maids of Jacob's official wives, Rachel and Leah. Well, anyhow, we will look at those um, stories and all the messiness next week. And there is enough drama there for a gripping Netflix show. <laughs> but the other interesting thing here is that this is the last story in Genesis introduced with these words. This is the account of a family line. And it gives us an idea of how Genesis was supposed to be read. Genesis is divided into 10 books, and each is introduced with this formula. This is the account of so-and-so family line. And contrary to our expectations, the story of each family line never looks back. It always looks forward and tells the story of the main character of the next generation. So the protagonist in the account of Jacob's family line is Joseph. Jacob himself is the main character in the account of Isaac's line, and Abraham is the, the, main, is the main character in the account of his father's story, the account of the family line of Terah. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the world, and in Genesis 2 we read, this is the account of the heaven and the earth, and this account tells us about Adam and Eve. So the account of each family line tells us more about what this family and the life of this family generated rather than where it comes from. And if you think of it, it is a really interesting idea to say that your family story is primarily defined not by who your ancestors were, but by your personal story and how, like, what you're generating now in your life. Have you ever felt like your life has been shaped by something in the past? You know, was it your parents or family or a career choice you made long, long time ago? And yes, 
none of us starts completely from scratch. But this way of looking at our life reminds us that we are always free to choose a new course. And the choices we make today, they become our story. And the, the good news here is that we do not generate our future on our own. And our failures and our struggles do not have the last word. So these 10 accounts of the family lines, with all their ups and downs, are also what Bruce Waltke calls the 10 divine initiatives in salvation history. They begin with the story of God creating the universe, then they lead to God's personal promise to one particular family, and then they conclude with the story of Joseph, which tells us how the nation of Israel ended up in Egypt and prepares us for the book of Exodus. So the stories of Abraham and Jacob unfold over 25 chapters. But I invite you today to look at two critical, and I would even call them generative moments in the lives of Abraham and Jacob, the call and the struggle. And let's try to reflect how our own spiritual journey is held between those two dimensions of our faith. So let's start with the call. It comes to Abraham during what Genesis portrays as the dark and hopeless times. First, the major project of human ambition, the Tower of Babel, resulted in the confusion of languages, in disunity, and dispersion of people all over the world. Second, Abraham, still called Abram at that point, is married to Sarah, who is unable to have children. And in that world, it was a sign of no hope for future. One of Abraham's brothers dies, and Abraham becomes the guardian of his nephew, Lot. And then Abraham's father, Terah, decides to uproot the whole family from their birth city of Ur and takes them to the land of Canaan. But they stop halfway, they never get there, and they settle in Haran. And both of those cities, Ur and Haran, were the centers of worship of the moon god, Nana. And this god was the main god of the Chaldeans. And all this tells us that Abraham doesn't really know this God who is about to start this dialogue with him. And finally, Abraham belongs to the people of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. And by this time in the story, God has been silent for 10 generations since the flood. No one heard anything. And by placing Abraham's story in this context, the narrator wants us to see that the project world, when it is organized without listening to the creator, has very little hope. And left to its own devices, the world is silent and confused and cannot give birth to anything new. And then out of silence and chaos, God speaks a new word. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Amazing promise, especially to a couple who have no human power to invent their future. And also it is a challenging invitation to people who now need to decide and choose between what they have and the unknown. In Hebrew, there is this pounding repetition of the word min, which means from. So go from your country, from your people, and from your father's house. And what God is asking Abraham here is to completely leave behind the three essentials of life that were the, the core of the ancient Near Eastern life. He wants him to leave his country, the source of his cultural, social, and economic life, his extended family, the source of personal support, and his father's household, the right to inheritance and financial stability. And now Abraham needs to say yes to, to this um, future which he cannot yet see, offered by the God he does not yet know, and he needs to say no to everything familiar. I think any financial advisor or risk analyst today would say to him, uh, this is not a good idea. But we also know um, what it feels like to leave something behind. Um, when you start a new job, or when you move to a new place, or you go back to school after a long time, and you're excited, and it's fun, and you're full of energy, but at the same time, you, you leave things behind, things that make you feel at home, things that you love, relationships, and familiar routines. And there's always this tension, you know, we just want to have this stable and secure life and be certain about our future. And while at the same time, we want to live for something great, something larger than us. We want to do something amazing. And, you know, like um, superhero movies do that for me always. And as well as when I see snow-covered mountains, or, you know, taste sourdough croissants, or listen to good music, or read brilliant writers, or hear about the Nobel Prize, and all kinds of breakthroughs in medicine, and the stories of people who follow Jesus no matter what. And there is something in us that, that desires the truly good and beautiful and wants to be inspired and wants to be invited to see um, ourselves and the world through God's eyes. And, and, and Abraham goes for it. He responds to this expansive vision of his future, to God's promise to be his source of security, his source of stability and prosperity and progeny. God says, Abraham, I will meet all your needs and so much more. The trajectory of my promise includes the whole world. And my promise is not only about what I will do for you or through you, it is also about what I will do in you. Daryl Johnson writes, in the biblical world, names were not, um, names were more than mere labels. 
To know the name of a human being is to know something essential about this person's character, some essential truth. So when God says to Abraham, I will make your name great, it is not only a matter of making him famous and giving him some social standing. It is a declaration of God's commitment to be at work in Abraham's life until Abraham becomes a person of great character. It is a, person, it, it is a promise of personal transformation. And the intriguing part here is that the God who created the whole cosmos becomes a personal God of this family. And this is a completely new relationship, and it will take time to grow and develop. And over the years, God will gradually reveal God's character to Abraham and his descendants, and God will become known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God for whom nothing is impossible. But at this point, as an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann puts it, the big tension in the story is whether the two partners, God and Abraham, will prove to be faithful, whether they will treat each other with integrity. And you know, when we talk about faith, we often get hung up on our theology, you know, what is the right way to think about God? What is the right way to talk about God? What is the proper definition of this or that? What is the proper understanding of this biblical passage or that theological construct? And don't get me wrong, theology is important, as is um, the good biblical interpretation. However, um, during the Second World War, a German pastor theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, warned his generation, and I think it's still a good reminder for us today, how easy it can be and how damaging to trade the relationship with the living God for a set of beliefs to which we, we like to subscribe, to which we're comfortable to subscribe. He called it cheap grace. And this is where the Old Testament gives us some perspective, because this understanding of faith is quite foreign to Hebrew scriptures. Genesis, for instance, describes faith with a metaphor of a journey, walking with God, and with a metaphor of a covenant, God never giving up on us. And in the Old Testament, faith is really about this integrity of a relationship. It is a matter of trust. And it all sounds really good, except that trust is really hard. Talking about prayer, one writer said that the only way any of us ever prays to God is as we understand God. And I believe the same can be said about trust. The only way any of us trusts God as we understand God. And our understanding could very well have been shaped by people or circumstances that did not reflect God properly. Research says that trust is one of the hardest things to learn for people who grew up in dysfunctional families. When your trust is continuously betrayed, and the promises are not kept, you learn that not trusting is actually the best way to avoid being hurt. 
But really, we, we all can relate to that. We all know what it feels like when trust is broken. And maybe you have been let down, or things um, didn't work out the way you wanted. And maybe you trusted God, and you prayed, and you prayed, and, and nothing happened. And then there were some people who were telling you, oh, you just need to trust. And you just want to say, uh, it's not easy. And this story says, yeah, it's not. It is a lot more in the story that we, we can see at a first glance. Abraham has been waiting for a long time. And yet now, his brother has died, his father has died, and he still has no children. And he is just constantly on the move, following this God who tells him, Abraham, trust me. And you know what? God knows that trust is hard and honors our doubt and gives us time. After his initial response, when Abraham said yes to God, it took him his whole life to learn to trust this relationship. And actually, it took God that long to make Abraham into a different person. And working through the stories made me wonder, how do they locate us in our personal spiritual journey, and even in our journey as community? And I think each journey starts with a call. God gives us a new vision of the world and ourselves and invites us into this relationship that will transform us. After all, our God is in the business of making us Christ-like. And this will look different for each of us because we're all unique and our God is creative. But we're all in this process of becoming the people we are meant to be. And as any relationship, this relationship with God is tested and tried by all kinds of situations. And oftentimes, this process of becoming sounds really beautiful, but feels like a struggle, a striving and wrestling with God. Which brings us to Jacob, the father of Joseph and the 12 tribes of Israel. And the core of Jacob's story is shaped by a conflict. Jacob, whose name means trickster, is on the run from his twin brother Esau, who promised to kill him because Jacob had cheated him twice. First, by purchasing his birthright for a bowl of stew. And that sounds like a silly transaction, but it was the right to inherit everything their father Isaac possessed and to be the head of the family clan. It was a big deal. And then he cheated him by stealing the patriarchal blessing, which Isaac really wanted to give to Esau, because Esau was his firstborn and his favorite. So the offense is pretty serious, and Jacob has to flee. And then God comes to him in a dream and makes the same promise of giving him land and offspring and also committing to be with him in everything and to safely bring him back home. It was a similar invitation into a relationship of trust that Abraham received. In response, Jacob gives a vow that if God holds up his end of the deal, then this God will be Jacob's God. 
And this encounter, this dream, begins Jacob's transformation and gives meaning to the 20 years he spends in his forced exile working for his father-in-law, who was also quite a deceitful man. <laughs> and when God tells Jacob, okay, you know, go home, head back, take all your possessions, your four wives, your 11 children. The situation with Esau has yet to be resolved. And Jacob is aware that the kind of pain, the kind of pain he caused his brother could outlast 20 years. And he's afraid of Esau's anger. So Jacob being Jacob, first thing he does is to send messengers to kind of take the temperature of the situation and the messengers returned saying, oh, Esau is coming to meet you with the sizable army of 400 people. So Jacob is terrified, and immediately he begins the preparation for the meeting by planning, and interestingly, by praying. So first he divides his family. He divides his family and all his possessions into two camps, hoping that in case of a massacre, at least one camp will survive. Then he sends 550 heads of cattle to Esau as a gift to appease him and to slow him down. And then he prays. Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And in this prayer, Jacob comes clean before God. He does not hide how scared he is for his family and their future. And by saying, I am unworthy, he's literally saying, I am little and everything I have is a good gift from you, and that in my dispute with Esau, I am in the wrong. And yet at the same time, he makes two pretty bold claims, and he appeals to what he knows about God. So first he says, you are the God of my family, and based on the stories of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, I know you to be trustworthy. And second, he wants God to be true to God's word. It is you who brought me back, promising prosperity. And it is you who said to my now endangered family that they will be like the sand of the sea. And God responds to this prayer, but not the way Jacob expected. So the rest of Jacob's day was filled with calculating and strategizing and packing and moving his family and possessions across the river, kind of the way um, from which his brother Esau will come. But then comes the night. And when the day's work is done, he stays alone in the dark with all his anguish and uncertainty about the future. And then the strangest thing happened. A man came and wrestled with him till daybreak. 
and neither could overpower until the mysterious man touched the socket of Jacob's hip and wrenched it. But they were so caught up in the wrestling embrace that the man had to ask Jacob to let him go, to which Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Two things here. First, it is really not clear who is winning. Usually, it would be the weaker person who will ask for the match to be over. However, it is always the stronger one who blesses the weaker. And second, throughout his life, Jacob is the one always grasping for blessings. And all the previous blessings that he snatched or received had to do with prosperity and protection and power. And it is quite possible that here he is just asking for strength to meet his brother tomorrow. And then the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So similar to Abraham, who was renamed by God as a confirmation of God's promise to help him become the person God wanted him to be, the mysterious man here reveals his divine identity and gives Jacob a new name. And standing before God, the trickster and the deceiver admits that he is Jacob, a trickster and a deceiver, and then receives a new identity, a new trajectory in life. And the meaning of Israel is quite obscure etymologically. It can mean God struggles or God rules or even God heals. And the whole story is intentionally obscure. But one thing is clear, though. Before facing his brother, Jacob has to come face to face with God. And the outcome of this conflict is different from the conflict of two other brothers, Cain and Abel, where one was unwilling to engage with God and struggle with his own darkness. Here, Jacob, in this wrestling embrace, holds on to God and, 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 and admits, he admits that he desired God's blessing more than he desired God's friendship. He comes out victorious in the struggle with his father and with his brother and with his father-in-law, but from this struggle, he comes away limping and he comes away changed. And of course, it will take him time to become a different person. But this night of struggle sets him on a new journey and prepares him to meet Esau in the morning. Have you ever struggled with someone? Like, like really struggled? And then came to some kind of reconciliation. And when that happens, there is something holy in that. And it doesn't take away the hurt, and it doesn't wipe away the past and um, offenses and pain, but it allows us to move forward in a new way. And even if we limp a little. Or maybe you have a limp, and maybe it still hurts from time to time to 
think of some things or some people. But maybe this limp reminds you of something important. Maybe it marks that new thing that God has done in you. And when in the morning Jacob embraces Esau this time, and Esau has forgiven him and brought this 400 men only to escort him back home with honor, Jacob tells his brother that seeing his face is like seeing the face of God. Something greater than their hurt and deception has taken root in both of them. And I wonder how often we struggle with something or someone without realizing that our main struggle is really not with that person or with this situation, but with God who, who wants us to forgive and to love and to uh, respond in a different way, but we resist because we expect God to do things our way. And how often we want God to go and, and, and change those people or change those things, but then God comes and, and struggles with us in the night when we don't even know what's going on. But then we we slowly, slowly start becoming a bit like God. Madeline Langler writes, Perhaps we need the angel to start grappling with us, to turn us aside from the questions which have easy answers to those which cause us to grow, no matter how painful that growth could be. And the stories of Abraham and Jacob remind us that our own story is lived between a call and a promise and a struggle. And it is lived with the absolute commitment of the divine. And it will take time. But if we keep at it, God being faithful and good will keep at it with us, helping us grow and become, and change until we, we, until we are formed um, into people of great character who know how to be a blessing to others. Join me in prayer. God, we are very little in what we know and how we love but you are the God of the promise who is patient and gentle with us. Lord, help us remember that our greatest gift is to know you and to be your friend. Give us this week the courage to seek your face in our struggles and help us to walk into difficult situations knowing that you are already there, healing, protecting, and making things right. May we know that you are good and true and faithful, and may we trust you a little bit more. And as we go from here today, Lord, may we be keenly aware that you are holding our stories in your hand, and you will fight for us, and you will love us into newness. In the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.